God is on a mission to restore us back to Eden, to to invite us back into unbroken fellowship, to be a part of his family, to, to engage with him in life once again. What he has done is he's invited us back into walking with him. listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Come on, can we get an amen on that one? God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is Sozo Church. Colossians chapter 2, uh, we're starting at verse 8. Uh, I'm going to read through verse 15. Um, Can we stand for the reading of God's word? If you're able, will you stand with me while we read God's word together? Let's show God's word the respect, the reverence, and the honor that it's due. Much will be said today, but we know what's about to be read is God speaking to his people. Amen? All right, here it is. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human Traditions according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Everybody say Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Come on, can we get an amen on that one? God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let's pray together, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning uh, that, God, you have made us alive. Lord, that, that dead men have found life in you, Jesus. And so we come to you, God, not as, uh, not as dead men, but as living men. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that in this moment, in this time together, you would speak clearly and you would speak powerfully to our hearts. Lord, that we would be transformed through what we hear this morning and we would be changed by it. God, it would go deep within us and rearrange and and reshift. God, I'm, I'm praying this morning that some things that are out of alignment would come into alignment. Some things that were, were confusing would become clear. God, some things that we misunderstood, we would find your wisdom and your understanding in them. God, by what you speak to us and the reality and the truth of what we hear, would God, in very real 
practical terms change the way we live our lives. For your glory, for your name, for your renown. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. High five somebody and sit down. All right, I already told you people I don't have time. Um, Okay, so, so we, we need to understand where we're at at this point uh, in, in our journey through Colossians. Here, here's what's taken place thus far. We have seen, uh, and we saw this very clearly last week, that God is on a mission to restore us back to Eden. Um, God is on a mission. God is at work to return us to Eden. God is at work to return us to Eden. He, he's, he has extended to us through Christ what I want to call an invitation to become a member of the first church of the cool of the day. To, to invite us back into unbroken fellowship, to be a part of his family, to, to engage with him in life once again. What he has done is he's invited us back into walking with him. Walking with God. This is what our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had with God in, in the original intended creation of God in the earth. They walked with God, and God is at work trying to invite us back into that. We saw a very clear picture of that invitation last week as we saw Paul call us to walk with God. And he follows it up immediately, the very next verse, after extending to us this invitation to walk with him, he extends a warning or a, 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 a call to be on guard, if you would. And the question you might ask is, why, why would Paul do this? He extends to us great news and, and a great invitation, and then immediately he kind of warns us, hey, so, so don't let anybody deceive you. I want to propose the reason why Paul does this is because he knows his history, he knows humanity, and listen to me, he knows our enemy. Paul knows history, he knows humanity, and he knows our enemy. And I want to make sure we have that same understanding. You with me on this? So we understand what's at stake here, what's going on here. So I know we just read the Bible, but y'all love the Bible. Six of you love the Bible. So, um, so for the rest of you, buckle up, buttercup, and uh, go to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know where Genesis is, just, it's like this much in the front of your Bible. If you have a flat screen Bible, just click on it. It's, I don't know what page it's on, just click on it um, and find the big three and the first one. We're gonna, we're gonna read some Genesis here. Um, just so you know where this falls in the story, God has made all things, created all things. Um, in six days, he created everything. In those days, he created the earth and the sky and everything, and then he creates man, and he, he, he called everything good prior to that, but then he sees a dude by himself, and he goes, that's not good. Can I get an amen from my single dudes? Um, that's, that's not good. So he, he, makes, he makes him a, a helpmate, a, a wife, a woman, and he, he brings them together and he said, now that is very good. Can I get a witness from some married people? That's very good. He says, that, that's very good. He, he then creates a garden for them and he places them within this garden. In this garden, he gives them everything they need. He gives them, he gives them food, he gives them everything. He gives them even a purpose. And he places them in, in the garden and there he, he sets them. And, we, and in the midst of that garden, he says, look, everything, you, you can eat all of the, the fruit of the trees that are in this garden, which by the way, I, I just have to say this. I know I don't have time to say this, but I have to say this. Uh, people say, see, before the fall, we were all vegans. They only ate the tree of the fruit. We have no idea what grew on those trees. They could be taco trees for all we know. <laughs> taco trees, burrito bushes, come on. We don't know what the world was like before the fall. We have no idea. I personally want to believe in taco trees. But in the midst of all these, he said, there's one tree. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that tree. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you are going to die. 
That's what he tells them. That's where we pick up the story. Verse one of chapter three. Since now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice he never said that. She added that, but we're gonna get back to that in a minute. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I need you to hear these verses. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who, catch this gentleman, was with her. She didn't have to go look for the homie. He was right there with her, just hanging out. Guys were like, well, she fell, and we watched it happen. And he ate it. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they, 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 they started the first religion. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What will that sound like? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I could preach like a year on that, but I don't have time. Where are you? And he said, the man said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? <laughs> and like all men, he said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I love the fact that like, he acts like he didn't know what tree it came from. Well, it wasn't one of the taco trees. Maybe it was a taco tree. That's deep. Um, <laughs> verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Paul knew this history. If you want a title, we gave you a title spot on your little card. So if you need, or your little booklet. So if you need a title this morning, drive everybody who hates my alliteration problem nuts. Eden, Eve, and evil. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Eden, Eve, and evil. Even evil. Isn't that the dude that jumps over the? I don't know. Anyways, um, I want to talk to you under that this morning because I think we find here the, the desire of Paul to warn us about these things finds their root here. Paul understood this history. He knew this history well. He knew humanity well, and he knew that we had an enemy. And so what, what I want to say to us this morning is this, that... Uh, our enemy's opportunity is found in our propensity. Our enemy's opportunity is found in our propensity. Uh, we, we have, I'm gonna be clear on this, we have a very real enemy who has a very real agenda of trying to deceive us. 
And just like in the garden, he's still at work trying to deceive us. And he deceives us by, by playing on our propensity. What's, what's our propensity? I, I would propose to you that the propensity of humanity when it comes to our, our life and our interaction and our relationship with God is to, listen to me, is to complicate and separate. We like to complicate and we like to separate. And some of you are like, you know, I don't think it's that easy and I don't like being lumped together with everybody like that. You proved my point. We like to complicate things and we like to separate ourselves from things. It's exactly what the woman does. She, she, she gets, uh, she's there in the garden, which by the way, I just have to go here. Like God makes them a whole garden full of taco trees and burrito bushes, leaves them there, says go, play, have fun, be there. You got got a purpose, take care of the garden, tend the garden. Don't eat this one tree. I don't know about you, but if if I was put there, I would want to think that maybe I would go like, let's not be around the tree. Let's go hang out somewhere else. We have a whole garden. Let's go be somewhere else. But apparently, first thing these two do is like, you know where we should camp out? Right next to that tree God told us not to eat. Let's just hang out there. I mean, I don't know about you, but seriously, God gave them permission, gave them authority over his creation, over this garden to tend it. I don't know about you, but if there was a tree in my yard that if I ate it, it killed me, I would cut the tree down. I'm not very good at cutting trees down. I had to do it last summer, but I can do it. It takes me a while, but I can do it, but they don't. They, they hang out by the tree. They eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. But what, what does she do when she's beginning to be tempted? She complicates it. She doesn't say, when, when he says, when the servant says, did God tell you you're not allowed to eat any of the trees? He says, no, we're not allowed to eat that one. We're not even allowed to touch it. God never said don't touch the tree. She complicates things. We, we like to make things more complicated than they are. And then she separates. What do I mean by that? She separates by she decides it's good. She decides it's desirable. She decides it's attractive. She decides that it's beneficial for her. Are you hearing me? She, she complicates and she separates, and our enemy knows this about us. See, the problem with deception is how deceiving it is. Deception never looks like deception. Deception looks like education. Deception doesn't look like deception. Deception looks like advancement. Deception looks like growth. Deception looks like evolution. Deception looks like, well, you know, I was here, but now I'm growing past here. I'm I'm moving beyond here. It looks like enlightenment when it happens. And so our enemy uses deception. You, You gotta understand, deception never looks bad at the beginning. The fruit didn't look bad at the beginning. The fruit was desirable. The fruit seemed Good, and you can understand why Eve would assume that it was good, can't you? Everything else God made was good, and heck, good is in the name. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, it seems good. It's, you know, she must have been confused about what God said because, I mean, the tree looks good, and it looks like it probably tastes good, and, and it's gonna make me wise, and it, it's gonna make me like God. What Eve misunderstood is, see, Eve did not know God. Eve did not understand God. She was confused about God. And we need to understand this. Uh, the enemy is trying to deceive us by making things that are bad look good. I know that seems too simple to preach on, but you need to hear that. He tries to make things that are bad look 
good. And, and I wanna be super clear, I wanna pastor here for just a second. I'm not as concerned about the stuff that he makes look good that is actually bad that's outside the church. Because if you're looking outside the church for your theology, for your doctrine, for your understanding of who God is and how he works, you're looking in the wrong place anyways. So we can just sort of lay blanket claim over all of that and say, don't go there. I'm more concerned about the, the corruption, about the deception that's going on inside the church. And some of you are like, whoa, there's corruption inside the church. I don't think so. Well, listen, I, I get myself in trouble. If there was a snake in the garden, why are we surprised that there are snakes in the church? I'm gonna get some emails on that one. Um, trying to do the same thing that the serpent did in the garden, deceive people. Trying to deceive us. Why would Paul warn the church about deception if he wasn't worried about deception being in the church? If he wasn't worried about deception being in the church, he would just say, hey, make sure you're not listening to anything, out, anything outside the church. Just listen, just listen to the church. What do I mean by, by deception inside the church? I mean anything that sounds clever but is not wise. Don't confuse clever for wise. Clever is tantalizing. Clever is engaging. Clever makes us kind of perk up our ears. Well, that, sounds really, that sounds really neat. But is it wisdom? It push you a step further. Don't confuse spiritual for biblical. Well, they're, they're really spiritual, so it must be biblical. Can I take you another step further? Don't confuse biblical with gospel. Well, the preacher quotes verses. I mean, she, she tells mostly stories, but then she kind of throws in a few verses here and there. So, I mean, it's biblical, but is it gospel? Does, does, does the person you're listening to, and I'm not telling you not to listen to anybody but me, I'm telling you to listen to everybody and me. What I'm telling you is when you listen to them, are they opening up the word and teaching it to you? Or are they just pick piecemealing little verses here and there to make their, their, what they're trying to tell you sound spiritual, sound biblical without actually being what the Bible teaches? Don't confuse spiritual for biblical. Don't confuse biblical for gospel. Don't confuse gospel for Jesus. Here's the simple test when you're listening to someone. Are they pointing me to Jesus? And by pointing me to Jesus, what I mean by that is this. Are they pointing me to dependence on and obedience to Christ? Or are they saying, well, you, you need that, but you also need. Add this to that, and then you'll have. No, Paul here makes it clear. We need, come on, Jesus. We need Jesus I'm not interested in going through here and unpacking for you uh, the philosophy and empty, de empty deceit and human traditions and elemental spirits. We're not gonna spend our time there. Why? Because listen to me, how many of you right now, right now at this moment, I want you to hear me, right now at this moment, if I offered you $20,580 for your smartphone right now, you would sell it to me. Now, how many of you would get a little confused when all of a sudden I pulled out $20,000 $580 that were like pink and blue and green and were Monopoly money. How much of a nerd am I that I know that there's $20,580 in a Monopoly box? That's all the money in a Monopoly box, by the way. That fact got in my head at some point in my life and it just came out now. Um, six of you are Googling it. He's wrong. Um, no, I'm not. Um, wh why? Because it's not real money. It's monopoly money. It's play money. And you know what real money looks like. 
how about let's change the scenario? Still $20,580, but I'll pay you all in $4 bills. You gonna go for the deal now? They, I mean, they're like printed, they say like all the right stuff on them, and they have like, I don't know, like Al Gore on it, and, and then $4 bills, like four, four. I'll pay five, you know, $20,580. No, you're not gonna do it. Why? Because you know that's not real money. What am I trying to say? I, I'm more interested in showing you Jesus constantly, consistently, always. Because then when somebody tries to pay you with some monopoly money, come on, you're gonna, you're gonna turn them away. When you hear something, you go, man, it, it sounds clever and it kind of sounds spiritual and it has some Bible verses thrown in there, but man, it's not pointing me to Jesus. You don't listen to that. It's, I, I love you. I'm not trying to be blunt or harsh here. It's deceit. It's trying to complicate and separate. So as we move through this text now, here, here's the amazing thing. Paul doesn't just warn us about the reality of deception. He tries to show us here in the text Jesus and how Jesus is all we need. So he understands history. He, he gets that what's taking place here in humanity is that we're fallen. Because of what Eve did, we are fallen. And what he shows us is that God fixes, fixed the fall with all, anybody remember that old, did they still make all detergent? I thought about going and buying some, but I didn't even know if they had any, it was gonna be my prop. Um, God fixed the fall with all, I don't mean with the detergent all, I mean with all of himself. With all of himself, he fixed the fall. But I have to, I have to go somewhere, this is where I don't have time for, but I have to go there anyways. Does anybody else ha- read the story of the fall and ask this question? Well, why God make the tree? You make everything else good, and you're like, oh, I'm going to just put a poison tree in the middle. That's bad parenting, right? Like, I'm just going to make, I'm going to make everything, I'm going to put poison tree. Oh, don't eat that. I mean, if he was going to do it, why not put it on, like, the top of Mount Everest? No, it's, like, in the middle of the garden, right there. Don't touch it. We all know what kids are like. Don't touch that. <laughs> Your fingers start to itch until you can touch it. Why did God make the tree? It's like, God... You knew it was poisonous. Why did God make the tree? Can I tell you God made the tree for the same reason he made everything else? For his glory. If that doesn't confuse you more, you don't understand what I just said. You're like, wait, so God, God made a tree that if we ate us would literally jack everything up for his glory. Well, that's because we, we don't understand what God's glory is. If you're, if you're from the charismatic world, you think it's like a cloud or goosebumps on your neck. That's not God's glory. God's glory is his nature on display. I know I'm gonna lose some people here, but just try to, I'm gonna try to go as slow and as steady as I can. God's purpose in creation was to have a means by which he could put his nature on display. What do I mean by his nature on display is his glory? Here's what I mean. When we see, let me back up, God is love. We we get that? Can I get amen from some Christians in the room, please? So God is love. When we see God's loveliness, when we see him loving, when 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 we perceive the love of God, we go, that's glorious. God's glory is the perception and response that we have to his nature. When we see God's nature, we see his character, when it's on display, we go, man, we, he, that, is, that is God's glory. 
That's what, that's what glory is. So what? wait a second, preacher. You're, you're, you're going to tell me here that, that his glory is seen in creation, in creating a tree that killed us. Well, let's walk through this here for a second. Eve was deceived because of her limited understanding and view of God. Prove it in the text, preacher. I will. I'm glad you asked. What did Eve know about God? She knew God was a creator and that God was a sustainer and that everything he made was good. That was what she knew about God. So she sees a tree and a serpent comes and says, no, no, no. See, God hid something good for you in something he said was bad for you. And she fell. Because she used her understanding of who God was to process the information coming to her from the serpent and said, oh, well, if God's good and he makes everything good and the tree looks good and the serpent says it's gonna make me wise, it's gonna make me like God, then I should eat this. She had a limited view of God. She did not understand the totality of who God was. So she ate it. This is the part we don't like, by his design. Because you see, she had, not only did she have a limited understanding of who God was, the limited understanding of who God was gave her a misunderstanding of who she was. Why was Eve trying to be like God? She was already like God. She already bore his image. I don't know who, what Christian I'm talking to right now, but you're trying to earn something that was yours by birthright. She already bore the image of God. She didn't need to be any more like God than she already was. But her understanding of who God was was limited. So what we need to understand is this, without the fall, and I know this is going to be controversial for some people, and if you want to talk about it after, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to come and talk to me after this. This is going to confuse the snot out of some people, but you need to hear it. Without the fall, our picture of God is limited. Without the fall, our picture of God is limited. Why did God purpose the fall? So we would see all of him. How could God let or even purpose this to happen? Because we serve a God, I need you to hear me, we serve a God so awesome and so powerful. We worship a God so loving and so good. We, 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 are, we are one and belong to a God who cares about us so much that he does not want to limit our capacity or our ability to see him and know him and enjoy him. So we serve a God so able that he can use evil means to make glorious means. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand the cross. Because if you want a definition of evil, creation murdered its creator for no reason. You're going to sit in your chair and tell me that's not evil? And yet, seen from the eyes of heaven, it is glorious. Because it is through that that we know reconciliation, that we are made one with him. See, before, before the fall, all we could know about God was that he was creator and sustainer and good. That was it. But post-fall, we know God's justice and his mercy. We know his wrath and we know his grace. 
We know his healing. We know that he's not a God who shrinks away from those who hurt, but one who draws near to those who hurt. We know a God who does not abandon those who fail him, but redeems those who fail him. Without the fall, you would not know that. How dare God purpose this? Well, guess what? He purposed the mess, and listen to me, he cleaned it all up. He took care of it all. All of God was on display in Jesus. That's what this text says, verse verse 9 and verse 10. All of God was on display in Jesus. To make sure we got it right, if the time between the fall and Christmas, the first Christmas, was not enough for us to see all of God, Genesis, come on, through Malachi, if that was not enough for you to see God, he made sure it was perfectly crystal clear through Jesus coming and showing us who God was. And all of God was at work, all of God was at work to fix all of the fall, and he would then be in all of us. True demonstration led to true reconciliation. All of God was seen. All of God was seen. We saw all of God fill all of Jesus who now fills all of us. All of him fixes all of the fall. Are you with me, church? Did I lose anybody? Okay, good. Here's the problem. And I love that the verses don't end here. I gotta go real fast now. The verses don't end here. This is great to me. The verses don't just end with reconciliation because if you understand the fall, you understand, great, I'm reconciled back to God. I'm in right relationship with God. But the problem is, I still have that propensity. Like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let me just make sure you understand this. Eve fell when she was in perfect relationship with God. So the the solution is not simply reconciliation, but can I get an amen from some people? The verses don't end there. The book doesn't end here. Colossians doesn't end with chapter two, verse nine. It goes on. Because see, our propensity needs to be dealt with. Verse verse 11 deals with our propensity in in what I want to call the mystery of circumcision, but some of you are uncomfortable with the word circumcision. You're like, hmm. So if you need a secondary point for this one, the transformation by union, if you need like a churchier uh, one, you can pick that one if you don't like the word circumcision. But that's the biblical word here, is circumcision. The idea here is that reconciliation will be short-lived if we are still in rebellion. If our propensity is still to turn away, if our tendency is to give in to temptation, how many of you know that just because we're reconciled, we're still not really in any better place? Reconciliation will be short-lived if we are still in rebellion. So what does he do? He, he must deal with our propensity. And what he says here in verse 11 is that happens through the circumcision of Christ, which he then relates in the first part of verse 12 to baptism. So where circumcision failed, baptism succeeds because circumcision was surface level. Circumcision was fleshly. He says what the circumcision of Christ is one done without hands. So it's not by your labor. It's not by your efforts. It's not by your trying harder. It's by your trusting more. It's in baptism. Baptism is a picture of us being united united with him in his death. So how do you defeat sin? Your flesh has to die. There's like 47 bajillion, I counted, um, different websites and seminars and classes and books trying to teach you how to manage your sin. None of them work 
Because sin can't be managed. It has to be put to death. So we die. That's, that's baptism. We, we go under the water. We, that's why we, come on, why I know somebody come from different traditions, that's fine. Your traditions are fine. They're just wrong. That's why we believe in baptism by immersion. We put you under because it's, it's, it's a, a picture of you being united with him in his death and you're buried. You're not going to overcome your sin by trying to try harder or try to do more. You're going to overcome your sin by putting to death your flesh. Make no room for it. Put it to death, be done with it once and for all. Be joined with him in union to death. The answer to sin is never management, but death. Sin dwells in our flesh, therefore destroy its hideout. What I mean by that is you are transformed because we are in him and die with him. We are transformed when we are in him and die with him. But here's, this only leads to another problem. Because we, we're not only blind to who God is, sin does not only blind us to who God is, it does not only bend us toward sin, but it also buries us. So now, preacher, you're telling me that sin's gonna kill me, and the solution to that is to be killed with Christ, so we're just double dead. This doesn't help. We're just following the text. This is welcome to my Bible study this week. We're just following the text. We're double dead because reconciliation and transformation are worthless to a corpse. I mean, I literally, the picture in my mind is like God goes and finds our dead bodies and drags us back into his presence, and we're like, yay, and then circumcises us, which is creepy, but circumcises, and then like, there we are. If you're dead, you're still dead. Can I tell you, listen to me, beloved, can I tell you, the good news of the gospel is not just that you're reconciled to God. It is not even just that you are transformed by his grace. The good news of the gospel is that the cross is more powerful than death. The, 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 the good news of the gospel is this, not just that you are, recon, not just reconciliation and not just transformation. The good news of the gospel is dead men can now live because we're not just buried with him. If we're united with him in his death and in his burial, come on, beloved, we will be raised with him in life. So we're not just, we're, we're, it's not just that we're, we're reconciled. It's not just that we're transformed. It's that we are given life. You want to picture this? Go to John chapter 11. We don't have time to go there. We're not going there. Don't make me go there. Go there on your own. John chapter 11. It is probably one of the most amazing pictures of what God has done in creation in the fall and redemption. It's the story of Lazarus. And I'm gonna forward, fast forward to the end where Jesus is there at the tomb. He's already wept over his brokenness. So don't think that God doesn't weep over the ramifications of the fall. He just has a purpose in it that is beyond even his emotional state. So he's willing to push through the pain to get to the purpose. That's a whole message in itself. I told you I wasn't going there. So we, what we have here is this. We have an understanding that Jesus is there in front of the tomb. And what does he do? He has him roll away the stone. And what does he do? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus just sits up and he goes, you know what? I have been, I have been presented a compelling case to believe in the historical reality of who Christ is. And I have been given a well enough understanding of the theological ramifications of who God is and the cross. And, and now, by an act of my own free will and volition, I choose Jesus to be my Lord and Savior from here forward. I will come forward. Nope. Not what happened. What happened? 
a dead dude became alive. Can I tell you, that's why we preach the gospel? Not to convince people of the historical reality of who Jesus was, not to tell people about whatever. We, we, we preach the gospel because in preaching the gospel, we are calling dead men to live. Not bad people to become good people. Dead people to become alive people. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. So now we have been, we have reconciliation, we have transformation, we have resurrection. (laughs) The problem's not over. Because this spiritual solution is fantastic, but I still have a practical problem. And that is that the Bible tells me the wages of sin is death. So I still have a death warrant, but here's the good news. The cross pays the cost. The cross pays the cost. It's, it's great in all that I've been reconciled. It's great in all that my propensity has been dealt with. It's great in all that I'm now alive. But guess what? There's still out there somewhere a warrant out for my death. There is a wanted poster that doesn't say dead or alive. It just says dead. Because the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. I am owed a paycheck by my sin of my own death. So I've been brought back to life. That's great, Jesus, but my, my, my sin is still there. Follow along in the text. The cross pays the cost, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, the wrath of God met the love of God and destroyed sin. The cross is the most scandalously beautiful moment in the history of the world. Your actual sin was actually paid. Do not think that this is just some some superstitious thing, some symbolic thing. The cross is not symbolic. It is supernatural. It paid your debt. On the cross, what this text is trying to tell you is the debt of your sin was was put on and, and bared by the only one capable of bearing the weight and paying your bill. He was the only one capable of doing it, and he did it, actually, really. It's why it didn't happen in some mystical, spiritual, fuzzy land. It happened here, now, really. If you believe that the cross is just some sort of symbolic thing, you're missing the whole point. It was actual, factual, real. It really happened. It was really horrific, and it really is the means by which you are capable of standing in the life granted to you by him. No more payment needs to be made. Paul here is trying desperately to show us all you need is Jesus.